talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. No, I got my mind on a nice, oh, I don't know, popsicle. A nice lime popsicle. That's what I'm thinking of at the moment because, boy, it is a cooker in southern Ontario. Welcome to Hamilton Today. Ted Michaels in for Scott Thompson on 900 CHML and our friends uh, this week at 980 CFPL in London. Yes, it is a hot one today, and we're going to be talking about that. Um, Anthony Farnell, uh, we haven't confirmed him yet because he may be outside in the garden doing the stuff that he does with the zucchinis. You know, you've seen him on on Global News and he's got that garden. Maybe he's out there working. So we're going to try to get him away from that for a few minutes and to talk about... um, the hot weather and how it can possibly cause some winter or winter, uh, possibly cause some very uh, heavy uh, downpour. So we'll talk to him in a few minutes. The uh, poll question of the day at 900 CHML will give you a chance to weigh in and vote which league has the best All Star game. Not going to give away the vote, but the question today which league has the best All Star game? The NHL, MLB, NFL, or NBA vote at uh, AM 900 CHML. Yesterday's poll question, are you for or against the return of mandatory random rapid testing at Canadian airports? 43% said they were for it. 57% were against it. So we'll have more about that uh, coming up in uh, a little bit uh, later on. Also, we're going to be talking with um, somebody about pizza, but specifically not necessarily about pizza per se, but more about people who wish that they could enjoy pizza, but they can't because they're lactose intolerant. There is a new survey that shows this province leads the country in lactose intolerance pain and cheese fear of missing out so what is the top one particular brand of pizza in this area toppers pizza what are they doing about it well we will talk to their director of marketing kind of get to the if you will the bottom of this and um, see what suggestions they have for people who who love pizza but really sometimes know that they're going to pay the price they have it and then they get uh, all the symptoms and uh You know, from what I understand, it can be rather painful. We'll have that as well. Also, we're uh, trying to find out about uh, the dry weather. We talked about the hot weather and the chance of a severe storm. Well, we're going to try to uh, get an expert uh, from the University of Guelph to talk about the dry weather and how it's affecting agriculture in southwestern Ontario. I think we all know the answer to that. Obviously, it clearly is. Uh, Boy, we need some rain. We need some rain relatively quickly. So we will uh, hear uh, about that a little bit later on as well. And uh, we'll also delve into a very serious topic a little bit later on. Uh, Canadians, when experiencing a suicidal crisis, some experts are saying we need a three-digit Number And we'll be talking more about that a little bit later on. Uh, But as we say, the uh, online poll question today is what is the best all-star game in your opinion? Which one has it? The NHL, MLB, NFL, or NBA? I know which one has the worst. And I don't know if you can do that. But if I had to vote for worst all-star game, NFL, hands down, because nobody's hitting. I don't expect them to get injured at all, but it is really, really 
boring. So that kind of eliminates that one. So you can weigh in, as we say, on our Twitter poll at AM 900 of CHML. Now I'm hungry. You know, quarter after three of the afternoon, you get a little peckish and you want something. <laughs> and why are we talking about pizza when I'm hungry? Because it's a very important topic. And we're talking about people that are lactose intolerant. There's a new survey shows that Ontario leads the country in lactose intolerance, pain, and cheese. Uh, and so our friends at Topper's Pizza commissioned an Angus Reed survey of uh, 1,500 Canadians or 800 on, or 600 Ontarians on the emotions and behavior around lactose intolerance. It shows the province leads the country 26% answering yes to having food allergies or sensitivity, including lactose. And joining us to talk about this for a few minutes is the Director of Marketing for Topper's Pizza, Holly Rowan Ashby. Holly, thank you very much. I am now hungry, so thanks for that. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. It's it's great to chat with you, and it's always a good time for pizza. Yeah, it is. I don't care if it's, you know, what. right now it's 34 degrees. It doesn't matter. Let's go back and talk about this particular survey. What was it the um, that, that kind of was the thread that made you folks decide, you know, we need to conduct a survey about this particular item? Yeah, well, our mission at Toppers is to bring friends and family together, um, and we say through a great pizza experience. Experience. And so um, we really wanted to understand um, the emotions and the behavior around um, our customers that that suffer from lactose intolerance. So um, it was, yeah, it was really important for us to find out 7 million people who who suffer from it. And a lot of them are our customers. So how are they behaving when they're, they're choosing their pizzas? 7 million people in this country. That's uh, almost like one in five. That's a staggering figure. Absolutely. Uh, so you have to... Uh, go ahead, Holly. Sorry. Yeah, you have to figure the trouble that, that people have when they're trying to, um, you know, choose their dinner choices um, around the table when they've got, you know, likely somebody in their family that's suffering from some kind of intolerance. Now, people have heard this expression, lactose intolerance, and I know that you're not a doctor, but if you had a chance to kind of explain to people exactly what it is, I mean, I, I know that what it is kind of explains it, but kind of in-depth more, what is it that uh, <laughs> that makes people suffer uh, from lactose intolerance, and what is it that specific foods kind of set it off? Yeah, so, um, I mean, lactose intolerance can range from anything from uh, a malabsorption to an intolerance. And as you, you mentioned, I'm not a doctor, but doing a lot of research as we were diving into this. Yep. Um, so the symptoms can range. Um, and... Um, yeah, so it, it starts usually as you get a little bit older. So you don't tend to have an intolerance when you're younger. Right. Um, but we kind of deplete in that enzyme that breaks down the milk sugars, the lactase, as we get older. And that's why you see a lot of um, Canadians or just a lot of people in general who, as they get older, tend to you know realize, geez, I'm having some kind of uncomfortability or intolerance when it comes to um, eating cheeses or milks or yogurts. And, and we've heard that there's a slightly different um, response that you get from cheeses and yogurts because they're um, produced a little bit differently, but um, milk seems to be, cow's milk seems to be um, a key contributor. Um, so yeah, that was 
that was that was learnings for us. You know, it's interesting because I know that some of the quotes that came out in your survey was one: "I love cheese, but can't stand the pain and discomfort," and I feel excluded when friends or people around me eat cheesy foods or pizza. I can't. Im- well, you know what, people, uh, you know, sometimes you have to miss out on stuff, but knowing that everybody else is having a good time, chowing down on on uh, on the za, and you can't have any, uh, that you know that 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 could be rather upsetting. Absolutely. And, and I, I know that a lot of families deal with it. And, and the thing that we found from this study as well, that 70% of the respondents were saying that restaurant menus are lacking the options for people who want the cheese, but suffer um, with that intolerance. And, and the choices that they do have are very limiting in terms of taste and availability. So let's, now let's talk about that. The survey came out, so obviously then uh, people go to the kitchen, your staff is hard at work. Um, is, was this a matter of, of experimentation? This works for people that are lactose intolerant and maybe this isn't? Uh, kind of talk about the, how they uh, got the perfect recipe, so to speak, for lactose-free mozzarella, uh, the, that option on the pizza. Well, actually, we were very lucky. We have a fantastic uh, partner in Lactalis who produces um, Galbani Professional um, pizza, pizza Mozzarella. And um, it is actually the number one uh, pizza mozzarella in Italy. And they just happened to produce it here in Canada as well. So it wasn't a lot of experimentation that had to happen. It was the same mozzarella that we use on our pizza. They are just able to extract the lactose during the process of it. And it cooks the same it looks the same it tastes the same it stretches the same um and it's we've we've been hearing through uh the testing through this that you cannot tell the difference so it's important for us that as the pizzas go out the door that we're uh labeling them um appropriately because when you get home you're going to need to know which one's uh lactose free and which one's not because you won't be able to tell the difference now that's uh leads me to my next point obviously marketing is a key component of this uh what are you doing uh topper's pizza to let people be aware of the fact that you are now offering or will be offering lactose-free mozzarella option on the pizza. Yeah, we've been having a lot of fun with this. This is something we're very uh, aware is a, is a unique opportunity and is going to fulfill a, a big need. And so we've just had a lot of fun um, doing, you know, the typical things that we we usually would for a campaign, um, getting it out through through print and whatnot. But we're also engaging influencers and we're going to have a, a big contest, um, you know, just wanting people to share the news um, and to try the mozzarella. And so we've we've found a full scope campaign and hopefully you'll see us and hopefully um, you'll come in and uh, and give it a try. Now, uh, when, um, I don't know if you want to give away the secret or not, if it is a secret, but when do you start officially uh, having this ready for the customers? Is it ready now or will it be in the near future? It is ready now. It uh, We launched with it yesterday. Okay. Now, I understand that Toppers is the first pizza chain, the first pizzeria chain to offer this. I don't have to ask how that makes you feel knowing that you're uh, breaking new ground, so to speak. We couldn't be more excited. We know somebody needs to be first. We are just beyond thrilled that that Topper's Pizza is first uh, to market with this. We certainly um, want to be clear that we know that there are probably some uh, respectfully said, you know, mom and pop uh, locations mm-hmm. that um, have some single units and and have had the opportunity to go to retailers and purchase um, lactose free cheese on their own. But we certainly are the first um, pizzeria chain in Canada to be able to bring this to um, those who who very. Much much need it. Now, I'm curious because you said you launched yesterday. Uh, have there been any uh, 
Has there been any feedback from anybody yet, or is it still really early when you look at the anecdotal evidence from people talking about, you know, this is really, really great, and, and what took you so long? We have been overwhelmed by the amount of um, press that we've been getting by the people who've picked it up and told the stories. We're still, um, you know, waiting to to hear anxiously from our franchise partners as to um, how it's been going in the first day and a half. Um, but we have already been feeling the love um, by seeing the messaging passed around. And we're hoping that that will continue because we're we've got lots to share. So uh, let's talk about that now. So uh, you you can get um uh, lactose-free pizza. You can still have it with the pepperoni and all the other stuff. And uh, this is just the one change. And you say basically people won't notice the difference, correct? They will not notice the difference. We left, We actually are looking now into potentially doing a, a taste test <laughs> challenge um, because we really think it's it's uh, it's that difficult. So we'd we'd love we'd love to hear the feedback. Well, you know, uh, as a person who likes to get uh, fully involved in stories, if you need somebody, you know, to be a participant in the taste testing contest, you know, this isn't like a Joey Chestnut scarfing down hot dogs. I will savor every bite, and, you know, if you want to blind for me, that's fine. But I'm just throwing it out there that if you do need uh, somebody to judge, I'm I'm ready for you. I love that you put that out there. We are absolutely going to take you up on that. All right. Holly Rowan Ashby, the Director of Marketing for Topper's Pizza. There you go. They are uh, had launched it yesterday. Lactose intolerance, uh, how it affects people that eat pizza, and what they have done about it. Uh, basically, mozzarella-free pizza. And uh, can't wait to see how this thing looks and how it tastes. Thanks very much for this, Holly. I am now super starved, so thanks for that. And uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be able to have a sample and have a chat about it uh, relatively soon. Thank you so much. We absolutely will. All right. There you have it. There's the update on, uh, you know, and that's something people don't, you know, talk about. Because, you know, a lot of us. Now, now here's a guy, me, William Weber, by the way, is our producer on the board. Here's a guy, well, me who doesn't like cheese generally. Like, if you give me a block of cheese, you know how you cut it off and you eat. Can't stand it, but put it on pizza or lasagna or something like that, I like it. I can't quite figure it out because there's something about taking a pizza if you're not lactose and kind of, you know, opening the pizza and taking it out and having the gooeyness all over. So I can't figure out why I like pizza with cheese and I don't like cheese the other way. You know, this is uh, something that perhaps somebody could do a study on, Will. Maybe, yes. Maybe it's to do with the fat or the just how crusty it is when it comes out of the oven, you know? I'm absolutely starved now. I, you know, I, it's a great, great segment, but I am totally, totally starved. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. In Hamilton, and it's pretty similar to London, right now it's 34 degrees. If you flip it around in Fahrenheit, that's 93 Fahrenheit, which is, um, I know of some people like hot weather. I know some people like humid weather, but I'm thinking this is maybe uh, on the verge of being almost too much. And we're in, I, I, I'm interested because I found out something about my technical producer, uh, William Weber, who uh, I understand <laughs> um, lives in a, a house in the east end of Hamilton, and you share it with not one not two, but how many people living in that house, Weber? <laughs> Including myself, seven in an old century home. Okay, so an old century home tells me that you do not have AC, correct? We do have central air. Okay. The previous uh, owner did do that. Uh, but at the moment, our filter is completely gummed up with drywall dust because my landlord did a lot of renovations 
and <laughs> didn't replace the air filter after that. So the AC doesn't work right now? Just about. You can get a little bit of airflow in the uh, first floor, but as soon as you go up to my bedroom, no. I need because to the that's, that's, that's the point. We live yeah. in a house that uh, is... Uh, it was built in the 40s, and uh, when you go upstairs, you know, it's in reverse. You start to go upstairs, you feel the heat coming, because we don't have a lot of great insulation, frankly, because mm-hmm. I'm too cheap to spend the money. <laughs> and then you go upstairs in the wintertime, and it's cold. So a uh, sensory-old home, I'm wondering when you go upstairs, uh, it, does it get a little um, close, as it were? <laughs> it is... Uh my God, it is always so stuffy in there. It doesn't matter if there's any people hanging around. It is always stuffy. There is no airflow up in the attic. Everyone sort of keeps to their rooms because we can just keep the windows open. Yeah. But it is still unbearable at the best of times. But keeping a window open in this particular day when the temperature is 34 degrees probably... I would suggest is not, well, I don't know, unless you have a really strong fan or a ceiling fan or something, then, I mean, opening a window, you're basically bringing in a lot of hot air. Yeah, we're just kind of fighting for our lives when it comes to this humidity, especially one of my roommates has asthma, so it's like we're we're constantly playing the dance, right? It's like, oh, how how far could we push it? Um, so I understand that there is a dog that lives with you as well. How, <laughs> That's how, me. How, I'm the dog. How surly is the dog? <laughs> well, as you can see, Ted, yep, yep. But, uh, our, our listeners cannot. I have a, a big old mane of hair. It goes down right to my shoulder blades. You kind of look, if, if people Google, not specifically, but you kind of look like Patrick Simmons from the Doobie Brothers. And I don't know if you know who that is. He's one of the original members. Rather long hair, I think longer than you, but you also have the beard. You see, every time I cry, try to grow a beard or I get, you know, a couple of days of unshaved uh, looks in the summertime, it gets really, really hot and itchy. So I can't imagine what you're going through with that long hair down to your, cascading down to your shoulders and also uh, the full-length beard. It is, uh, I I kept shaving the beard for the purposes of the masks, right? And then it just, I got too lazy, so I just kept that. It's, hair hair goes up if I ever need to hop on the social bikes, Uh, and just just pain, just pain and suffering in the house. But that actually does bring up a good point, because with uh, the beard and everything else during COVID, we all had to wear masks, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I can't imagine what it was like throwing on a mask with uh, that amount of hair on your face. <laughs> it was very funny, because I started wearing the uh, N95 uh, types. Yep. That are just super tight seal, and yes. I, I had a permanent crimp in my longer beard. This uh, company has been really, really proactive in taking care of its employees when it came to COVID, and I know that they gave the, the N95 masks as well. But I, I thought it was just me with my big cranium, but when I put on the N95, you know, put it over the ear, the, the ear kind of got bent back, first of all, which mm. looked, you know, not very flattering. And then I would take it off at the end, and it's like, the, as you say, there's gouges in your face from uh, putting on the, the N95 mask, which apparently is the best one that you can get, I understand. I think it was one like N98 or whatever, but the N95 is pretty good. But uh, again, I can't imagine what your face looked like. <laughs> Sorry, we're getting personal <laughs> here. What it looked like when you wore the mask. Oh, yes, I just got... I, I always just looked kind of scary because you could never really see my face. And yep. I have these, like... I have a very dark, rounded sunglasses like Ozzy Osbourne. 
So I'm just walking around like that with my six foot two frame and my Iron Maiden shirts. And it's like, I'm probably scaring all of these children around here. But I you know, promise I'm just trying to live. You know, it's interesting, too, because uh, you mentioned yesterday, and I applaud you for doing it, that you a lot of times ride your bike into work from the East End, which is not a short, uh, short hike, so to speak. But you said yesterday, you kind of said no, because it's way too hot. I don't know what time you bike in the morning, but uh, I mean, I ran this morning purposely at 7.30 because it was still cool enough. There was a bit of a breeze, but I can't imagine riding a bike anytime after 10, 11 o'clock or even now. Oh my God, no. Yeah, especially because the humidity this morning was 69%. I said, no, thank you. That is... I'm swimming through the air. Just getting to the bus stop was just like, oh, man, I need to take a break yep. on my seven-minute walk to drink some water here. Jeez. So um, that's the situation. I mean, we're we're kind of poking fun at, at the way Willie, William looks, but uh, <laughs> it, it, it's not funny when you go, go to a house, uh, as you say, century old, and there's a lot of beautiful homes in Hamilton. A lot of them don't have ACs, and they have fans and what have you. And this friendly reminder, if you're listening, to make sure that you check on people, check on uh, your elderly neighbors down the street. Uh, we've heard the stories a lot of times. Please watch out for the pets in the car as well. Mm-hmm. How many times have we had stories on news about people that have accidentally uh, left a dog in the car and the outcome is not very good or heaven forbid a child as well so let's all take care of each other because uh, this can be when there's an issue scott is all in on getting to the heart of it this is hamilton today with scott thompson on hamilton's news today's talk 900 CHML. Joining us to talk about what could uh, be down the road as early as tomorrow is the Chief Meteorologist for Global News, Anthony Farnell. Anthony, welcome to the program. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, nice nice to talk to you. It's been, uh, it's been a busy, busy, busy day with the Weather Center with all that's going on uh, here in Ontario, across Canada, across the planet. Yep. <laughs> but uh, yeah, glad to make some time. So let's, uh, well, first of all, I should say the obvious question, because I watch you all the time. How's Storm the weather dog? <laughs> he, he is doing well. <laughs> he he uh, doesn't like the heat like uh, like so many of you. He's getting to be a bit of an older dog, too. Yep. So uh, air conditioning is, is where he spends most of his day or, or at the beach. If he's going to the beach in the water, he's, he's a happy dog, too. I have to ask, one of the things that, that you do is, is, is really, really entertaining is when you're doing your live hit outside and you're standing by the Global Garden. We saw you last week, you were picking the beets, and the, I know you got some zucchinis going and tomatoes. and what. How did all that start? Because it's a great part of your broadcast. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was a, kind of a, an idea that I had just when the pandemic was starting at the beginning of COVID and everybody uh, was starting to get uh, into gardening and getting their green thumb. Those that have been doing it for a while uh, were growing their gardens. Others have never tried and maybe just planting something on their balcony. But I figured, okay, let's let's make that happen here. And I got a couple of uh, these large troughs. They're basically pig troughs. Uh, and then we used them, uh, we filled them with soil and, and have been planting for the last couple of years and uh, hoping to expand it out a little bit and maybe donate some of this food to, to local food banks down the road yep. uh, and also just give advice to people on, on okay, how <laughs> does gardening work, but also how does the weather play a role? How does the forecast play into when you need to water? When do you need to harvest some of these crops? So it, it's been really a, a nice addition. 
Anthony, so now let's talk about uh, these conditions because I know uh, right here in Hamilton right now it's 34 degrees and the Humidex is well over 40. And then I, I know enough of watching you through the years and uh, talking to people before uh, you were on the on scene. Um, hot, humid weather like this usually leads to instability, and at some point we get thunderstorms, and sometimes they could be pretty severe. Are we looking at possibly something like this coming up as early as tomorrow? Yeah, it does look like uh, there's that threat. Now, Hamilton, Toronto, areas right around the shore of Lake Ontario, a bit of a lesser risk because of the timing of this cold front, how it interacts with the hot and humidity of the day uh, because it moves through southwestern Ontario, areas closer to Georgian Bay and Lake Huron, it'll move through at 4 or 5 o'clock. That's the maximum heating. And these areas could see not just uh, damaging winds, lightning, hail, but also uh, a tornado risk. And, and Environment Canada has just issued a special weather statement already ahead of, of what's expected tomorrow. So for that area, I'm most concerned. And then it turns into more of a, a straight-line wind damage type situation uh, perhaps later in the evening but it all comes down to timing so we'll keep an eye and definitely uh, all your listeners keep an eye on the sky uh, coming up around i'd say six to to nine o'clock tomorrow evening are we getting more of these type of events uh, through the year? I, I'm not going to get into the whole thing about global warming because everybody's talking about that, and we kind of know that, yes, it is a thing, but are, are we getting more severe storms when they hit us? Well, uh, we, we've had actually a, a bit of a, a severe storm drought since uh, the end of May, early June. It's been a calm pattern. Uh, it's been an actual drought for some parts of uh, of the province. So we've been lucky in that regard. Areas like uh, the southern prairies, so Winnipeg, uh, Saskatoon, Regina, it's been storming almost every two days. And this is something uh, that was in our summer forecast, and, and we thought there'd be storms a lot more often around here. But I think we've turned the corner. I think now we're, we're getting into that pattern And a lot of it has to do with the increase in humidity, which if you've been outside, you notice. But also uh, the fact that we're right on the northern edge of this big heat ridge that is uh, causing all sorts of problems south of the border in the U.S. with uh, just excessive heat for for week after week, and and it looks to continue as well. Well, I know I was uh, looking uh, through some of the the sites earlier today, and we talked about the temperature here in Hamilton is 34 or 93 Fahrenheit. In Lubbock, Texas, it's 99 degrees Fahrenheit, so uh, not not quite as hot in Lubbock, but I would say, Anthony, that people here can relate to what they're facing down in Texas, and as you say, other parts of uh, the, the U.S. as well. Well, very, very extreme temperatures down there. Yeah, and it's just relentless for them. Here, we, we deal with it for two days, and then we get we get a cold front, we get some relief. Uh, but there, uh, if you don't have air conditioning, I mean, everyone has air conditioning down in, in Texas, but uh, it has been just uh, an incredible stretch. I'm, I'm looking at Dallas as well. They're now up to uh, 25 days uh, above 100 Fahrenheit. Wow. The summer's summer's not even half over. So, uh, yeah, it's been something there. And, and of course, what's happening across the pond in in Western Europe and the U.K., uh, just uh, some extremes uh, this summer for sure. Well, I was going to ask that that question next. When we go across the pond, England, I heard yesterday, was about, in some places, 38 Celsius, which is 100 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, the hottest ever, obviously. And I know that uh, we're not being flippant here, but they don't know how to handle the heat. We, in many ways, do. I'm not so sure that's that, that that's the case over in England. Yeah, and it's less than 5% of, of residents have air conditioning. So that's a, that's a 
big time problem. Some of them may be thinking twice about that with the, <laughs> the way our climate's going. But uh, yeah, it's just been incredible to see that pattern. This air that's now over the UK for a few more hours, it, it is going to be much cooler in the days ahead. But it, it broke records of 40.3. That was the official highest ever temperature today, uh, breaking that old record of 38. So it's just unprecedented. And, and to see it over so large an area, it's not just London, it's, it's most of the UK and Scotland, Wales, uh, even Ireland has, has seen temperatures near, near 30. So it's widespread. It, it basically is air that came from Africa right up through Portugal and Spain, France, and, and into the UK. Now, we also should mention that uh, the western provinces, of course, are dealing with a number of wildfires caused by warmer and drier weather. We talked about this yesterday. We had the massive wildfires, Anthony, last year in B.C., and it seems that uh, that remains the case, maybe not quite as extreme and extensive as they were last year. But once again, the summertime in B.C., they're getting uh, really, really hard hit by wildfires. Yeah, and, and the the main fire, uh, which uh, continues to grow, is right near Lytton, which uh, was was front and center last year with the record warm temperatures and and of course the the fires that followed. So uh, it is uh, it is the opposite setup for them. It's been very wet and cool in BC. That's starting to change, and uh, I, I do fear for for the weeks and months ahead. They get fires every year in BC. This is nothing new, but uh, the fact that we're seeing them already when it's been so wet. That has me concerned because the pattern's drying out, and I think August ends up turning dry and hot for, for B.C., Alberta, and, and through much of the prairies. Anthony Farnell, the chief meteorologist for Global News, thanks for the update. We'll keep the eye to the sky. We hope we get uh, a little bit of rain or a lot of rain, but certainly not severe rain uh, through the next 24, 48 hours because our lawns and our vegetable gardens and uh, everything else, we desperately need this. Thanks for the update. Enjoy the rest of the afternoon. We'll watch you on Global News. Thanks a bunch. Take care. All right. There's Anthony Farnell from uh, Global News. We mentioned, uh, he said it could be a little worse, not necessarily in the Hamilton, Toronto area, but down around Lake Huron and uh, the London Corridor. And uh, that area could get some severe storms tomorrow. They said roughly, he said roughly about uh, six o'clock is when all that stuff will start. Now, there is uh, a recent working paper and a finger is being pointed at our friends south of the border. Because, you know, the old expression, when the U.S. sneezes, Canada catches a cold. So we thought the best person to talk about this is Ian Lee, the associate professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, first of all, thank you for joining us. I'm wondering, how hot is it in Ottawa this afternoon? It's uh, very, very hot in Ottawa this afternoon. Uh, probably the hottest day this year t- uh, thus far. So it's like thir- feel 30 feels like 38. So oh. it's, it's very hot. But it's a beautiful... Beautiful July summer day. Oh, so you're one of those people who likes hot, humid weather, Ian, as opposed no, to all? I, I hate to admit this, but I'm inside because it's so hot. But I'm going swimming after. Oh, we're on we're on the St. Lawrence River, and so we're going to go down and go into the river after. It's so hot. Oh, geez. Okay, so let's talk about this now. Fingers are being pointed at the Americans. Is that uh, is that fair to say? Or is that too broad of a statement? Um. I'm going to be much more nuanced on this. Of course, the American economy influences and public policy in the states influences Canada because it is the largest economy on planet Earth. Uh, Your listeners may not realize, I mean, we all know it's very big, but the U.S. is one of 193 countries at the United Nations, one of 193, but it's 25% of the totality of world 
GDP. One country is a quarter of the world's economy. That's how enormous it is. So, you know, somebody says, does the U.S. economy um, and decisions influence the Canadian economy? Of course it does. Always has, always will. But I wouldn't then say, therefore, um, uh, there was nothing that happened in Canada that had any impact on inflation. Yes, the U.S. and Canada, by the way, um, uh, put, uh, some argue, and I'm one of them, put too much um, stimulus into the system. And I'm talking the so-called, what we called CERB money, but the Americans did the same thing. Yep. So they pumped uh, trillions in their instance. We pumped billions, um, three-quarters of a trillion, $650 billion into the economy. And um, we had spent more as a percentage, U.S. and Canada, spent more as a percentage of their economy, GDP, than any other wealthy countries. Way more than the Germans or the Swedes or the Brits or the French or the Italians. So, I mean, that's empirical. You can compare it, and we over uh, put a lot more in. Our GDP collapsed during COVID, but our household income went up. Normally, normally in a recession, when GDP goes down, income goes down. It, they are almost joined at the hip like identical twins. You know what I mean? But yep. in this instance, it, during COVID, uh, GDP went south, income went north. I've never seen that in my lifetime, by the way, ever, not once, ever. And that's because they pumped so much in, both the U.S. and Canada. And, of course, all that, those trillions slushing around um, exacerbated the situation. And then both the U.S. and Canada had interest rates at the lowest level they'd ever been in recorded history. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm not, they're both, they both had a big impact on inflation. Um, even to this day, I mean, the governor of the Bank of Canada, who does know something about monetary policy, has said the interest rates are too low, and they have been. That's why he's pushing them up so quickly, because they were too low. If they weren't too low, he wouldn't be pushing them up. But yes, so I'm, I'm saying, yes, this, this study that came out, I don't deny it at all. The American government pumped too much stimulus into their economy, and because their economy is so, so large and so influential, and we are so influenced by it, there was a spillover effect into Canada. No question about it. But that was not the only impact on inflation. We also made it worse. We exacerbated it with too much stimulus and with interest rates that were kept too low for too long. Ian, you talk about the uh, states and what they did. What would the, if you will, the financial payback be? Uh, because what will the other shoe look like when it drops in the states uh, with uh, what they did as you talk about the stimulus packages? Well, the, uh, the, the, the most obvious uh, sort of a knock-on effect, unintended consequence, if you want to use that phrase, is that now they're going to have to really... Uh, drive up the interest rates. In fact, Jerome Powell, Mr. Powell, the head of the Central Bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve, has essentially said so. Says we've really got to put interest rates up. So, you know, what I'm trying to say, and I'll make it very explicit, there's no free lunch. At the time, uh, you know, the American president and Mr. Trudeau and Canada, we got to do this, we got to do this, crisis, crisis, we got to pump it in, don't, don't ask questions, don't know, you know, the, we'll worry about after if there's any broken glass or, you know, to use a metaphor. And I was arguing at the time, you know, we, yes, of course, we've got to help those people who uh, needed help. 
But we knew from the get-go that we're not going to witness 100% unemployment. Everybody did not lose their job. In fact, to be precise, it was about 16%. Now, those 16% needed help. But about 85% of the economy, I'm one of them, professors didn't get laid off. School teachers didn't get laid off. Policemen didn't get laid off. Public servants, federal, provincial, municipal, didn't get laid off. Big corporations hardly laid off. So, yes, it was about 15% in round numbers that were hit hard, and they needed to be helped. But we provided help to a lot more than the 15%. And so I was arguing we will, and there will be unintended consequences. And now we're witnessing the consequence, the unintended. I don't mean that they sat around and said, let's blow up the economy. Of course not. I think they panicked. I think they panicked at the time. And, I mean, I was watching Mr. Drury every press conference. And, oh, my God, oh, my God, we've got to do something. We've got to do it now. Quick, 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 got to get the money out the door. You know, that sort of mentality. And there was a, a fear and panic in Ottawa. And it caused them, I believe, to overdo it, to right. over, overstimulate the economy. And, you know, as I said, there's no free lunch. You do that, you pump way too much liquidity into the system with really ultra-low interest rates and huge amounts of income, fiscal stimulus. And guess what? <laughs> You're going to have an enormous amount of money chasing goods that aren't there because of the supply chain interruptions and the shortage of goods. And that's a recipe, if not to cause inflation, it's certainly going to make it much worse. Ian and Lee. That was my criticism. Ian Lee, the associate pro- professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton. I wish we had more time. Always a delight when I get a chance to learn financial stuff from you. So <laughs> hopefully we'll get a chance to chat soon about some other financial stuff down the road. Go, go jump in, in, in the river. Go jump yeah. in the lake and enjoy it, Ian. Thanks very much for the time. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Pressure is mounting in Canada to establish a three-digit suicide crisis hotline like the one implemented by the United States this weekend. The number in the States is a 988. It's a mental health hotline that American authorities launched and once fully operational will residents struggling with suicidal thoughts, an easy to remember number that will connect them with trained mental health counselors instead of police. Well, that's in the States. What about here? Joining us for the few next few minutes to talk about this is the executive director of Youth Mental Health Canada. Uh, Cheryl Boswell joins us. Cheryl, first of all, good afternoon. Good afternoon. So, so let's talk about this off the top. You know, the, the numbers we say in the states is nine eight eight. You know, sadly, we've we've had heard all the situations in the past of of people that have taken their life and uh, you know died by suicide. I'm I'm frankly surprised that this type of initiative hasn't been started sooner. Exactly. I mean, we know three digit numbers work, and we've used nine one one, three one one, two one one, four one one. So it's clear that three digit works and is effective, and that's why they've been implemented in the past. And in fact, I didn't realize that um, uh, the you know as a funding source, a charge has been placed on people's phone bills for nine one one. I don't know if there's a monthly fee in Canada for that, but that's interesting. Yes, it's about time. And you know we have eleven suicides every day in Canada approximately 446 young people, 10 to 24 years old, die by suicide every year in Canada. We have the third highest youth suicide rate in the industrialized world. So should we take action? 
Yes, we should. <laughs> Definitely we should. We know that we have uh, government support. The government, government officials are behind this. We know we have universal support from Canadians who want to see coordinated, comprehensive action that reduces the involvement of police. Um, in health crises, it's not a criminal activity. We want to reduce and, and uh, take pressure off the hospital system um, because that's not effective. It's a very expensive approach. And, and frankly, it's, you know, people, families wait for hours and are turned away. There's no supports available. So there is nothing from 5 p.m. to 7 a.m. in the morning. So if we have a coordinated system across Canada of crisis support services that are supported, well-supported, well-funded, trained staff and trained in trauma-informed approaches, culturally sensitive approaches, um, and we look at a triage response. So we're not just talking about suicide crisis. We're talking about mental health crisis, substance use crisis, um, so with all that support of listening, um, providing support when people call, text, or chat, um, providing resources and referral, and then a triage response. And the responses should be community-based. So we're, I, I'm looking at um, uh, respite centers, community-based respite centers. So where people need a mental health break for one week or two weeks, they can do it within the community or compassionate mobile crisis units. So taking away from the, the police involvement, there's no need to have uniformed police and marked police cars. If we train people in compassionate responses to people in crisis with mobile units, these are effective. But I think more than that, we want to um, go beyond just reacting when someone's in crisis. We want to provide supports to increase mental wellness protective factors, and that requires intersectional mental health and suicide prevention uh, awareness. So, you know, if people are struggling financially, don't have housing, don't have food, um, talking to a counselor is not going to be effective. So we need to go beyond that. And also for students across Canada, Youth Mental Health Canada has written five mental wellness resources workbooks um, that incorporate international best practices. These books, workbooks, should be in the hands of all young people in Canada. Cheryl, we I need to look at proactive um, support. Sorry. Cheryl, uh, that number that, that you mentioned, 11 suicides a day in this country, that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's upsetting and, frankly, that's rather staggering. Yeah, and another uh, statistic that's really just you know, uh, unbelievable, is that 75% of all suicides are males from the age of 10 years old up. 75%. So, you know, we need real action to take better care of each other. Um, in Canada, we don't like to talk about suicide. We don't like to talk about suicide prevention. We have to, you know, challenge that kind of stigma, those, you know, the... Uh, attempts to silence conversation because people have challenges in living and we have to accept that we need to take better care of each other we need to share responsibility in suicide prevention by opening the conversation and a three-digit number normalizes the talk about mental health it's accessible it's inclusive it's equitable 
Um, but we need to work with people on the front line who've um, spent years providing crisis support, coordinate that with the three-digit number, and really um, work together with people with lived experience who, you know, are want to be, um, uh, you know, uh, to feel confident that there's not going to be police involvement because, you know, BIPOC people have had big experiences of police violence. Um, so we want to ensure that it's a compassionate, safe response that that people are going to experience. And then work together with our American partners who know the challenges and have lessons to share with us so that we can provide a really positive, um, proactive um, approach that is, you know, it's just the first step. And there's so many possibilities that can come from there. We're up against the clock. Cheryl Boswell, Executive Director of the Youth Mental Health Canada. We'll see what happens when the CRTC announces their decision, how they're going to handle this, and hopefully things will move along uh, quicker than uh, than normal to get this line up and running. Thank you very much for the time. Hope to have you back Thank on the you. air soon to talk about this. Thank you very much. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Well, the Pope said on Sunday that his trip to Canada uh, coming up will be a pilgrimage of penance that he hopes can help heal the wrongs done to Indigenous people by Roman Catholic priests and nuns who ran the abusive residential schools that you have heard and read and seen the stories about. Joining us to talk about this for the next few minutes is the professor of systematic theology at Martin Luther University College at Wilfrid Laurier. Alan Jorgensen joins us. Alan, good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Great to be on. So let's uh, talk about this first of all. Is it uh, fair to say that uh, um, kind of on uncharted territories for a pope uh, kind of coming to Canada to know that he is kind of facing, uh, I don't want to say a hornet's nest, but certainly uh, fair to say that some upset people may be uh, there to greet him? Well, yeah, it certainly is a, is a unprecedented uh, event. Um, uh, this is really critically important. Um, indigenous people have been asking for this, as you know, um, from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, called Action 58. It called for uh, the Pope to come to Canada to apologize for the Roman Catholic Church's role in the residential school system. So people have been looking for this. Um, it's been a long time coming. Uh, they're very anxious. Of course, there's going to be a variety of responses. Some people are very angry. Um, some are very hurt. Some are grateful for the gesture, but uh, certainly everybody is kind of looking to see what will come of this all. Well, we know that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, called for a papal apology as part of its 94 calls to action. Uh, that is a lot uh, that they have to deal with. Uh, the Pope has apologized, but I'm wondering uh, if, if maybe him apologizing to uh, the people involved in this country, would they think that that's enough? Well, that's a great question. Certainly, um, a call for an apology is supposed to be on Canadian soil. So we know that on April 1st, he made a, an apology um, um, for some of the, the abuses, grave abuses committed by some members of the church. People are looking for perhaps a more fulsome apology um, for the role of the church um, in particular, not just some members. Um, also, a part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls for action include um, educational strategies for congregations, um, 
work for theological students to uh, learn to respect indigenous spirituality in its own right. So there's still work to be done on that. And then also funding to help indigenous communities that have been hurt by the residential school system. So I think your question is uh, germane and important. It's not enough that he comes and apologizes, although that is critically important uh, for the indigenous people and for um, Roman Catholics um, who are not indigenous, for Christians and really for all Canadians. But equally important is that this is followed up by uh, gestures of, of penance that are include reparation in some fashion. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you, you you had mentioned, uh, Alan, that uh, the theological students are now being involved in this. So um, in many ways, that's good that, you know, they're they're starting off their, their career, they're starting off their life uh, in theology, and that they're uh, probably finding out a little bit more about uh, the past as, uh, as upsetting and sordid as parts of it can be. Yeah, absolutely. I know we we teach a course in Indigenous uh, wisdom at our school that rehearses this. Uh, we've been having our students read the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in many classes. People are often utterly surprised. They had no idea that this was going on. Um, as we know, the discovery of graves really raised this the consciousness of the nation about this. So this is a critically important visit. Um, it's a good opportunity for the Pope to um, to make an important first step that can be followed up with further uh, action around reparation. I'm wondering now if he um, comes to Canada and uh, he's coming to uh, Edmonton and Quebec City and Iqaluit, uh when he expands on the apology. I'm wondering now if maybe there's other places around the world that we haven't heard about yet that maybe down the road, uh, should he live this long, because he, he's not a young man, mm-hmm. maybe might there be other trips for him to take part in going around the world? Because I would suggest possibly that what happened didn't happen just in this country. Yeah, certainly. We know well of uh, the residential school system, or they're called the boarding school system in the U.S. Um, and I think around the world, we we hear stories. Um, we certainly know that in Australia and New Zealand, similar um, problems uh, persist, although in their own modality, a little bit different. But um, I think, you know, the 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 picture of the Pope arriving is a powerful symbol for um, indigenous people for Roman Catholics. Um, he's representing the head of a, a large church and speaks for um, a lot of people when he when he speaks. So I think um, in locales around the world that have experienced this uh, colonization, um, this action of violence against spiritualities other than Christianity, the apology of the Pope is a powerful symbol that can really, I think, help to uh, start a new way of being together that's not marked by division and um, anger and and hurt. Very quickly, Alan, and you kind of touched on it already, when you watch the visit of the Pope next week, what will you look f- at as the, quote-unquote, the victory to, uh, not to say that, the, you know, this is a game, but, but to kind of think, you know what, this is something uh, that had to be done, and we're glad that mm-hmm. he did it. Does it go farther than just the apology? Um, well, I think the apology is, again, a, just a really important first step. Uh, and I'll be listening for whether the apology is um, addressed for, uh, he's apologizing for some members, or the role of the church as an institution. I think that's what's critically important. The church as an institution has, um, not, and it's not just the Roman Catholic Church, it's other churches as well, mm-hmm. um, has been involved and implicated in the role of colonization. And so the church as an institution, I think, should be um, looking to apologize, not just for some people, but the, the very action was uh, of setting up these schools was um, hostile and 
uh, to indigenous people um, and did a, extreme violence to them. Of course, we know of deaths, but people still suffer from the trauma of this, these, uh, the, of this institution. Um, so, but certainly beyond that, um, the Roman Catholic Church um, set up a $25 million campaign uh, to help with um, TRC number 61. It kind of fell flat at $4 million and kind of petered away. Recently, they've said they're going to start another $30 million campaign, um, hoping to have that fulfilled by January 2027. Uh, we'll be looking to see if something happens around that. Um, where that goes, um, that will be a sure sign of the, the second step after the first step of the apology. Alan Jorgensen from Martin Luther University College at Wilfrid Laurier University. We'll see what the, the Pope says and what he does when he visits Canada next week. Thank you very much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great day, everyone. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Over the course of the pandemic, the healthcare system has been shaken. We've heard so many stories of people getting sick, but the stories are coming out as well. The people that are caring for us maybe have been forgotten. The toll that has been taken on our doctors. Now there is word fewer of the next generation are aiming toward family practices. So there's a lot of questions why. And trying to answer those will be uh, our next guest, the president of the Ontario Medical Association, uh, Dr. Rose Zacharias. Dr. Uh, Zacharias, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. Thank you. Good afternoon. So let's first of all talk about this. Um, I'm, I'm curious off the top when you look at, uh, at numbers, roughly how many people in the province are without a family doctor? Any ideas? Oh, so we know that over more than one million people in Ontario don't have a family doctor. And we know the doctor shortages are particularly extreme in the more northern and rural communities. But every city, every medium-sized community is experiencing doctor shortages, and that's our number, uh, one million people in Ontario don't have a family doctor right now. Now, uh, physician burnout is a thing that we've heard a lot about, and, you know, uh, talking generally about the healthcare system, we know there's, there's been a lot of nurses that have basically said, I can't do this anymore, and they go on to uh, something else. Uh, the pandemic has taken its toll on an awful lot of people, physically and mentally, and Dr. Zacharias, I would suggest when uh, people are going to medical school, they had no idea how to deal with a pandemic and the problems it would cause. Is that a fair statement? So I went to medical school just over 20 years ago yep. and have been practicing hospital-based medicine, primarily in the emergency department ever since. Yep. And we had no idea the pandemic <laughs> forecasted. Um, it was not forecasted, right, no. for March 2020 and then two and a half years later, still at this stage of the pandemic. But the healthcare system has been severely strained and we are experiencing gaps that existed before but have now been exposed and, ex and causing burnout and uh, an extreme uh, overwhelm in the system. And it's, it's incredibly alarming. Doctor, I know that um, one of the things that uh, doctors have to do, and I know a lot of them don't like it, is administrative work. Talk about perhaps, and, and there's no such thing as a quote-unquote normal day, but in a day, for example, of uh, a family doctor, how much time would they take doing things like administrative work and, you know, getting receipts uh, for people who need receipts and billing people and what have you? How problematic is that? 
So first of all, what we know is so valuable when you go and see a doctor or have a family doctor is the relationship that you have, the trusted relationship that you have with your doctor. And what we know is over time, uh, above and beyond the clinical duties, the day-to-day care for patients of physicians, so much more has become expected of them. And the administrative burden of practicing medicine now is really disproportionate to the amount of clinical care doctors do. For every one hour a doctor spends with a patient, they actually document for about two hours. So you can imagine how many more patients a doctor could see in their day if that administrative burden was reduced. And people wonder sometimes why it takes so long when you make an appointment for you to sit in the waiting room and get that uh, that uh, checkup from the doctor. Uh, I would suggest that that could be part of the uh, part of the answer right there that maybe people weren't aware about. So what we need to do inside the system, and we are working with all levels of government here at the Ontario Medical Association, to look at the system solutions of reducing the burden that exists when family doctors, when specialists are wanting to do patient care. I mean, we talked about getting into medical school and then training to be that competent, intelligent, high-capacity, compassionate individual physician. And all of those physicians and healthcare providers still exist inside the teams. But the pandemic has been a strain and the system has been broken for some time. And we're experiencing that now. So we need to look to systems level solutions. We talk about a prescription for Ontario, which outlines key priorities of addressing some of the strains in the system. And uh, and we look forward to working with government to address some of those strains. Doctor, it almost sounds like, if you will, it was almost a perfect storm of COVID hitting and the shortcomings in the medical system. Uh, it kind of everything almost, if you will, collided at the most inopportune time. Is that a fair statement? This is a perfect storm, but it is also an incredible opportunity. We have uh, ideas of where to strategically invest. We know we need more investment in community and long-term care, in mental health and addiction strategies, also a public health strategy so that another public health crisis doesn't take us out at the knees or even affect the economy the way this one did. Ontarians paid such a high price in the pandemic, and we know a lot more now than we did at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, and so we can implement that uh, and look ahead for a stronger healthcare system to provide the care. And everyone needs a family doctor. We have a plan to to, to bring that about. And so, um, indeed, this is an opportunity to um, to take advantage of, I think, to, to improve the care that people deserve and expect in Ontario. Doctor, before we wrap up, can you talk about the importance of team-based care? And when I say that, I know a lot of people now go to their doctor, but sometimes they don't see their doctor because they see the nurse practitioner first who takes the information, takes the blood pressure, writes it all down in the computer. Uh, this is what you need. And sometimes they don't see uh, the family doctor unless it's uh, really warranted. Is this possibly the way that things are going to be done in the future? So team-based care is key. First of all, patients are experiencing complex medical issues. There's an incredible backlog of care that occurred as we were dealing with the crisis of COVID. And so showing up sicker at a doctor's office with complex health care needs may mean that you need to see a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, a dietitian, a social worker, a physiotherapist 
to address all these needs. Indeed, the family doctor needs to be there at the hub, you know, leading the care management and everyone needs a family doctor to do that job. But every member of the healthcare team is very valuable and contributes to the care that patients experience. Dr. Rose Zacharias, president of the Ontario Medical Association. Uh, hopefully we have turned the corner and uh, the, uh, despite the fact that we're in uh, the seventh wave, that things have calmed down considerably over the last couple of years and hopefully things will start to turn the corner and get a little more, um, a little more positive uh, down the road. Thanks very much for joining us. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. Joining us for the next few minutes to talk about random testing for COVID-19 resuming at four major airports in Canada, including Pearson, is uh, Thomas Tenkate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health with Toronto Metropolitan University. Thomas, good afternoon. And right off the top, uh, it's resumed at four major airports. Is there some concern now? Should people be getting a little worried? Yeah, th- thanks for having me, Ted. Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, from a from a traveller's perspective, I don't think it's going to be as as big an issue as it, as it was previously from a from a inconvenience perspective. But but I think as a community, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of signals across all the criteria of of you know cases rising and uh, really really on a on a you know we've, we've talked about surges and waves. We're definitely in uh, you know the upward trajectory of. Of, of the uh, next sort of wave of, of the pandemic. And so so I think more broadly, I think people should be uh, expecting, uh, you know, increased uh, measures to be starting to, you know, roll out. Uh, and, and, you know, and I think this is the, you know, the first of, of a series that we'll start to see over the next next few weeks. You know, um, and again, uh, all the problems that they've had at Pearson Airport aside, it seems like we're just getting ready and kind of getting back to whatever the new normal is, but at least people flying again and people getting on the planes and going to the airports. And we just start picking up speed, Thomas, and then this happens again. I don't have to ask how frustrating this is for people in the airline industry. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, you know, it's, it's definitely uh, frustrating for everyone. Uh, you know, I, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, what, you know, this time around, they're, they're saying that the uh, testing will be d- done off-site, so it won't be done actually at the airport. So there won't be that sort of bottleneck, uh, you know, at the airport itself. And But then you'd have, you know, I think a number of people have sort of raised, well, what's the, how effective is this really going to be? Uh, and, you know, and, and so if someone sort of gets an email to say, yes, you, you, you're, you're, uh, you've been, you uh, identified as requiring a test you know what what will happen if they don't ever do that or, or what's the you know in some ways you know my sense is it's it's a sort of a, maybe a toothless tiger from that perspective is it is it really something that's going to be be very effective in a lot of ways it probably isn't but it's it's i suppose it's just a a more of a you know a shot across the bow by the by the government to say you know, we're going to, you know, this is a, you know, we're going to start in implementing some additional measures. And, and so, you know, this is the first, but overall, will it make a whole lot of difference? Pro- probably not. You know, in Britain, uh, Thomas, uh, the latest uh, government statistics say uh, the week ending June 29th in England, one in 25 people had COVID-19. Now, we don't know, obviously, how how serious that was. We don't know if they had uh, a vaccination or whatever, but, but it seems... 
it's always there, isn't it? Like 1 in 25 doesn't sound like a whole lot, but the fact that it's not really going away can still, I, I would suggest, cause some concern. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. We, you know, I think, you know, if we we look at the UK as a sort of precursor to what happens here, and that's you know that's what seemed to have happened, you know, throughout the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even though we're we're at uh, higher rates of what one of the measures called the percent positivity of of the testing, we're we're at sort of double their rate right now. Uh, their rate is climbing to close to now close to what they had in early. 2022. So, uh, and so if we we look at that, we've we've got a bit more to go before we're at that same level. But but you know our trajectory is is on that sort of upward slide again. And so so definitely, you know across the community, you know what what I'm seeing in the numbers is that that a lot of the the cases uh, and particularly hospitalizations are driven by people who are unvaccinated. And so so really. You know, I think a key for 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 people is to to get their you know that get their third dose, uh, and and if they're eligible for their fourth dose, uh, to be able to get that as soon as possible as well. So I think that's you know that's a key thing that people can do to try and help uh, you know s- s- uh, decrease the the uh, the impact and an impact on the hospital system that's really seeing uh, you know large numbers of. Of people, you know, the the statistic that that is really interesting is the hospital occupancy for COVID is is ramped up. Uh, the latest data is two hundred and seventy three people additional versus the previous week, and so you know that that sort of statistic, and and they're saying that they're expecting that to double nearly every two weeks, and so so that you know for a hospital system that's really been under pressure and, and uh, you know for for a number of years now because of the pandemic this is you know additionally additional stress and uh, you know that's that's not good for everyone for anyone our uh, we're talking about uh, what's happening now with the uh, COVID testing at airports at Pearson as well as Vancouver Calgary and Montreal now we we should clarify how this is going to work in the past uh, your passport would be marked as random by customs for online testing now and and I can just see the people going to their computers and cringing people who qualify as fully vaccinated will get an email notification within 15 minutes of completing their customs declaration letting them know that they have been selected for the test and I'm not comparing the two and I'm not uh, trying to be flippant here Thomas but it's almost like jury duty when you get that letter in the mail from the attorney general you know what's coming and I can see people getting ready to go and they go garn now I gotta go and get the test so so this could cause I would suggest even more frustration uh, well, yeah, definitely. You know that you know for for travellers who are who have, uh, experiencing a lot of uh, stresses in the the travel process now, you know this is definitely an additional one. Uh, but but I think you know I, you know the, the good thing is that they've they've said that they're going to take it off site, so at least there's not that sort of bottleneck at the at the at the airports. But uh, but it's definitely you know a sort of a continuation of the the sort of the travel process, and uh, yeah, and I think. You know, overall, you know, my sense is that that it's it's you know it, it over. What I'd say is, I think you know, any measure is better than no measure at the moment. But the question is, is this really going to be that effective? And and you know, in a lot of ways, I'm not really sure because of you know that 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 sort of follow up and and the 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 
the the way of monitoring whether or not people are actually doing it and 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 you know basically once someone's in the community uh you know depending on the the return around time of those those tests they could be out and you know if they are in, infectious they could be infecting a you know a lot of people in in the interim interim time so so in a lot of ways i think it's you know a starting point for these additional measures but whether or not it's really going to be an effective one, I'm not sure, but but definitely it's going to be you know something else for for travellers to uh, to you know in some ways be wary of. Thomas Tenkate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health with the Toronto Metro University. Thanks for the update on what is happening at airports across Canada for them, including Pearson. Uh, let's hope things uh, get calmed down again relatively soon because, again, it just seems we just start to pick up speed and then this happens again, and and hopefully uh, this won't be uh, as anywhere as serious as it was in the past when a lot more people got tested. Thank you very much mm. for the time. Appreciate it. Thank, thanks very much, Ted. Have a great day. You too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. This is the uh, the last part of the program where we kind of go through some of the stories that maybe uh, you didn't hear today. Uh, and uh, the CHML and the CFPL newsrooms are sometimes so busy they don't get a chance to um, talk about these things. But always interested to find out uh, when they release the list. Now, this is from the state. So, of course, we have to kind of find out uh, what's going on if it's the same situation here. But the National Insurance Crime Bureau in the U.S. has come up with a list of the most stories Stolen vehicles. If you're driving a Chevy or Ford full-size pickup, the National Insurance Crime Bureau says if you're driving a Chevy or Ford full-size pickup, the National Insurance Crime Bureau says you're in one of the most stolen vehicles of the year, followed by the Honda Civic, Honda Accord, Toyota Camry, GMC pickups, Nissan Altima, Honda CRV, Jeep Cherokee, and Toyota Corolla. While they top the list, the caveat would be they're also the most sold cars in the U.S., so there are more of them out there. The bureau says car theft was up 8% in 2021 compared to 2020. 14% of those stolen were Chevy, Ford, and GMC full-size pickup models. Alex Stone, ABC News. I have a 1992 Yugo. Nobody's taking it. Nobody wants it, apparently. So, gee, I wonder why. Uh, Also, this is one of the most critically acclaimed TV shows of the past years. It turns 15 today. What do you fellas do? You're looking at the finest ad men in New York. 15 years ago today, Mad Men made its debut on AMC. The show about sexism in the 60s and advertising would go on to earn 16 Emmys while its actors became huge stars. John Hamm, Elizabeth Moss, Christina Hendricks, just to name a few. It was AMC's first original series, putting the channel on the map as one of the premier places to turn to for quality content. Breaking Bad soon followed, along with The Walking Dead and Better Call Saul, helping to usher in the current golden age of prestige cable and streaming shows. I'm living like there's no tomorrow, because there isn't one. Jason Nathanson, ABC News, Hollywood. Well, we know and uh, we've heard about uh, the gas prices, and I filled up today a little. It was it was a bargain, just over $1.70. Isn't that sick? It was over $2, and then it was uh, down to about $1.70 and change, and I filled up the tank, but uh, certainly clearly not uh, as low as it used to be. You kind of wonder what happens uh, here because of what happens in the states. Well, stateside, prices continue to gradually decline. 
Gas prices continue their descent from record highs, with the national average of a gallon of regular unleaded falling another 16 cents in the last week, according to the Energy Department. The cheapest gas can be found on the Gulf Coast at $4 even. The West Coast, especially California, still seeing the most expensive gas. And while prices are going down, drivers are paying on average $1.34 more per gallon than they were this time a year ago. Brian Clark, ABC News. Now, one of the stories that uh, we've been following a lot lately is the story involving Hockey Canada. And uh, the Prime Minister uh, held a news conference and said he believes it's difficult for anybody to have faith or trust right now in Hockey Canada after finding out about the news about the organization's cash fund to pay for liabilities, including sex abuse claims. He said it is absolutely unacceptable and things need to change at Hockey Canada. When I think about the culture that is apparently permeating the highest orders of that organization, I can understand why so many parents, why so many Canadians who take such pride uh, in our national winter sport are absolutely disgusted by what's going on. And certainly as a government, we will continue to be unequivocal in our uh, condemnation of what we're learning. And that's the Prime Minister talking about that. By the way, if you missed it, uh, Hamilton and, well, southern Ontario, uh, we're under a heat warning uh, for later on today and it continues tonight and tomorrow. Daylight uh, highs expected to be in the low 30s, but also feel close to 40 degrees with the humidity. We had Global News Chief Meteorologist uh, Anthony Farnell on the program a little while ago. He said there will be a risk of thunderstorms late tomorrow afternoon or night. Now Hamilton, Toronto, areas right around the shore of Lake Ontario, a bit of a lesser risk because of the timing of this cold front, how it interacts with the hot and humidity of the day uh, because it moves through southwestern Ontario, areas closer to Georgian Bay and Lake Huron. And that includes you, obviously, London. He said, we've been lucky to avoid a lot of thunderstorms so far this summer. And this is something uh, that was in our summer forecast, and, and we thought there'd be storms a lot more often around here, but I think we've turned the corner. I think now we're, we're getting into that pattern, and a lot of it has to do with the increase in humidity, which if you've been outside, you notice... And he said uh, that there's been fewer thunderstorms than initially forecast so far this summer, but that's about to change because of the increase in humidity. But also uh, the fact that we're right on the northern edge of this big heat ridge that is uh, causing all sorts of problems south of the border in the U.S. with uh, just excessive heat for, for week after week, and, and it looks to continue as well. Now it's expected to cool off slightly on Thursday, but it'll be back up to about 30 degrees for the weekend. And uh, certainly that is something that not anybody's really looking forward to. And hopefully things will be okay if we do get the really, really nasty weather. One more thing before we go, and we kind of talked about this as well. Uh, the UK has broken its temperature record. The country still under a heat wave. Similar conditions also in place in the U.S. A large proportion of Americans being advised of the warmer than normal weather. Kyle Benning from Global News explains. People in Great Britain were lining up to take a dip in lakes as 40.3 degree temperatures have been recorded. The previous record, 38.7, 
back in 2019. Alex Deacon, a meteorologist at the Met office, says dozens of regional records were also broken. Last night, we broke our all-time minimum temperature record as well. Temperature didn't drop below 25.8 degrees Celsius. So yeah, a whole host of records broken. Crews are still putting out wildfires in Spain as North American firefighters are doing the same in Texas. More than 20 U.S. states have announced heat advisories, with about a third of the population expected to see temperatures above 37 degrees Celsius. Kyle Benning, Global News. So there you have it. Southern Ontario getting baked, uh, parts of the U.S. getting baked, and the U.K. and parts of Europe as well. Really, really, really inclement and hot weather. So stay cool, stay hydrated, keep an eye on your neighbors, and everybody take care of themselves. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thank you to the two wheels, William Erskine and William Weber, for producing uh, the show today and technically producing the show. I'm Ted Michaels. We'll see you back tomorrow afternoon on 900CHML and 980CFPL in London. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.